the second chapter of Exodus. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, Moses, uh, after Moses was grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them uh, at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of the Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reol, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Raoul asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. When did you last have a false start? Perhaps it was house hunting? Job hunting, that one looked like it was the right one until it disappeared and left you high and dry. Perhaps your last false start was in a relationship with someone. 
Or maybe the first thing that comes to mind for you is the most recent attempt you had to try to put to death that besetting sin that just will not let you go. False starts hurt. They hurt because they, they raise our expectations and then our experiences that they dash them upon the rocks and we feel like it was all for nothing. And if you look at the whole of Exodus chapter 2, perhaps ignoring for a moment 23 to 25, there's something of a similar emotional arc to the whole of Exodus 2. Humanly speaking, you've got a boy who is born, who as Andy explained, was um, potentially about to be killed, who's wonderfully saved. His, his life takes this incredible turn towards greatness and all sorts of opportunity. And then, just a few years later, it all seems to unravel. And by the time you get to verse 22, you might be feeling like you've been left high and dry. That's not the whole of the story to Exodus 2. What Moses shows us in this chapter is that God is at work. He's at work behind those appearing false starts. He's at work behind those moments of disappointment. And because he's at work, we can have hope. That's the central idea to everything that's going on in Exodus 2. Really, it's the central idea to the whole of Exodus but we're going to see it from different angles as we work through this book together. And right at the heart of this chapter, and there are three discrete sections to it, we're going to look at the first two this week, the third one, Lord willing, next week. I want you to see that even in the most discouraging seasons of life, we can have hope in God. I want you to see that firstly from verses 1 to 10, where we're to have hope because God preserves his people by his providence. God preserves, keeps his people by his providence, his care. We're going to get to all of those details. That sounds a bit Christian. This story is so familiar that even if you're new to church, many of you will know that when parents are expecting a child, they will often buy a basket they call a Moses basket. Here's why. Even if you've not been in a church or a church family for the whole of your life to this point, this language is so familiar with us, this story is so familiar, that it seeped into our vernacular. And when you think about having a baby in a Moses basket, perhaps when you think about the scene that we have just read in Exodus 2, most of us feel light and joyful. We've got a number of storybook Bibles at home. Here's how the scene is portrayed in one of them. And I imagine, given that we're in the Middle East and it's hot, that the sun probably was shining when all of this was going on. But as Andy so helpfully reminded us before he read this passage, there is a lot more going on here that we need to bear in mind. If you're a Christian and you know where this story is going, you know what Moses is going to be called to do, you know the amazing rescue of God's people, it's hard not to read that excitement back into the story. But at the time all of this is happening, Moses' parents weren't only thinking of excitement and hope. Exodus 2, as Andy reminds us, comes hot on the heels of Exodus 1, verse 22, Pharaoh's law of death 
is hovering like a dark cloud over every birth for every Jewish parent. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Can you imagine the mixed emotions that Moses' parents would have gone through? Not knowing whether the baby was a boy or a girl. The baby was born. And then all of a sudden you've got this horrendous mix of emotions. Where with the joy of seeing new life and the gift of a baby that the Lord has kept safe through all of that pregnancy. You realize it's under threat. But their joy was not overwhelmed by fear. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that. Hebrews 11 verse 23 says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they were not afraid of the king's edict. Isn't that incredible faith? That's the kind of faith that you see repeated all the way through church history. It's the kind of faith that is being lived out right now by our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Eritrea, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, and India. They are the top 10 countries that experience the greatest persecution for believing Christians in our world today. And many of our brothers and sisters in those countries are today living out their faith the same way that Moses' parents lived out their faith. They were not afraid of the king's edict. They trusted in God. Now, what Moses' mum was thinking of as she looked at her newborn baby, we can't be exactly sure. Verse 2 tells us that he was a fine child. And if you were to look at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's translated that word as beautiful, which means when you get into Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, when he's looking back over the history of Israel, and when you get to Hebrews, as they're talking about different characters from the Old Testament who were used by God to be people of faith, they use that word beautiful. Now, at one level, every single mum looks at their boy or girl and thinks they're beautiful. And that might be what's going on here, but I'm not sure it is. In the Hebrew, all that is said literally is he was good. Tove, he was good. And it might be that as Moses' mum looked at her son, she thought he was a healthy young boy who would survive because so many didn't. Perhaps she received a, a, a supernatural understanding of something of what this boy would come and do that we don't know about. But whatever it was, we're not sure. Whatever the reason, they are driven by faith in God not to abandon their boy. And Exodus 2, just like Exodus 1, is another chapter full of the remarkable courage and faith of godly women. Last week, it was the Hebrew midwives. This week, we've got Moses' mum and Moses' sister. We've even got God at work in a courageous way through Pharaoh's daughter. For whatever reason, Moses' dad is only mentioned at the very beginning of verse 1. And then the focus thereafter for the whole of this chapter is on the courage and the faith of these remarkable women. And in the case of Moses' mum, she puts her faith into action. She gets the papyrus, she makes the basket, she weathers it by using the, the tar, the, bit, the bitumen, whatever it was. And then she puts Moses in it and places him in the Nile. Now we're so used to the story 
we probably think, storybook image, what a lovely scene. If you're a parent, imagine putting your child into the river that the king of the land has declared is to be the grave for all baby boys. Emotionally, it must have been overwhelming. But there's even more going on here. See, the word that we've translated basket in our versions is, a Hebrew, is an Egyptian word that Moses borrowed. You know, like we borrow croissant and deja vu from the French. Well, he borrowed tabar, an Egyptian word, to describe this. And if you look in your Bible, you may well see that you've got a footnote that says something like mine says, uh, the Hebrew can also mean ark as in Genesis 6. It's the only other place in the Bible where this word is used, and we are meant to see a parallel here. Noah stepped into an ark that preserved him from the judgment of God in the flood. In a similar way, Noah is pla- sorry, Moses is placed into an ark that is placed onto the river where he is preserved from the judgment of Pharaoh. And the next few verses show us God's plan in all of its detail. One of the things that I love about Exodus 2, when, we, when we're talking as Christians about God's sovereign plan, because sovereign and providence tend to be big words about the totality of God's control of all things, you tend to think big. And then you get to chapters like Exodus 2, and you realize that that limitless power and control over all things is worked out in the detail of a helpless baby that is soon to be scooped up by the arms of a pagan princess. And not only that, not only is providence seen in the tiny details, but you see that in God's power, his sovereignty is exercised with humor and irony. It's not just functional. It's not just, I'm in charge of all things to achieve my plan, but there's a delight in what God does here. Let me show you that in a number of ways. Firstly, it's Pharaoh's daughter who defies Pharaoh's decree of death. It's it's, the daughter of this pagan ruler who has decided that all Hebrew boys should die because he's desperate that they not grow into a powerful nation. It's his daughter that's at work in this. She discovers this basket. It's her heart that goes out to this crying baby. If her father had been there, he'd just upturned the basket. She reaches in with her heart. And now in our translation, verse 6, it says, She was sorry for him. Literally, it's she spared him. And what I think we miss in swapping spared him for sorry, it's not the emotional reaction of a a young lady, probably, who's looking at a baby who's helpless and in need. What we're missing is that she totally understands who this baby is. She knows he's a Hebrew, and she knows he's a he. So as she looks at this baby, she is in defiance of her father, who's If you know anything about the Egyptians when you were at school, you know that they viewed their leaders as demigods. His word was law. You crossed him, you're dead. And here's his daughter saying, I'm going to spare you. Humanly speaking, that changed everything for Moses. The family who'd issued the command that should have killed him 
is now going to bring him under the umbrella of the protection of the royal family. And it gets even better than this. You got this amazing gift of him being given back to his family. You've got Miriam who steps up with this amazing courage in verse 7. Here she is. We don't know how old she is, but a girl who's standing by the riverside knowing that the person she's about to speak to is a daughter, maybe of many, of the most powerful person in the land. Okay, And Mir- Miriam's got this great plan. And again, we lose it a bit in our translation. She, she sets up what she's going to say in such a way that Pharaoh's daughter's going to be like, oh, brilliant, of course, you do that. What she says literally is, shall I go and get for you, we miss that emphasis a bit, one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you. It's all for you. How can we serve you? Here's a baby here. We don't want this to be a trouble. So how about for you? I go find somebody who can nurse the baby for you. And then you have this remarkable response in verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses back to his mum and says, take this baby, nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Now, we in English say, this is having your cake and eating it. But this is more than that. This is ridiculous. This is somebody who should have known better in the worldview of thinking that I always obey my dad because he's the rule of all things, saying, I'm going to protect this child, who I know is a Hebrew baby boy. I'm going to give him back into the Jewish family that he was born to, to be raised so that you're completely safe through the whole of his childhood. Oh, and oh, by the way, we'll cover all the fees. (laughs) Remember what's going on in Egypt. The Israelites are being so persecuted that they're being commanded to build bricks without straw. Everything is being made hard for them. And here's Pharaoh's daughter saying, I'll subsidize the upbringing of your son. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. It's writ large all over this chapter. I think we are supposed to see a foretaste here of the plundering of the Egyptians in Exodus 2. That's what is going on here. God is giving his people blessing upon blessing from the hand of the people who are trying to kill him. It's God's sovereign hand at work. Preserving his people. And it's here to encourage you And to embolden you in your faith. But we need to be careful not to draw the wrong straight lines from Moses' experience to our experience. And we can do that in a number of ways. Here are two. Moses' story doesn't mean that God will definitely preserve you as he preserved Moses. Remember the context. Horrifically, there would have been babies in the Nile. God graciously saved Moses because he was his appointed deliverer for God's people. We're going to see that as this book unfolds. But that didn't mean that every single Hebrew baby was spared. And we need to not oversimplify some of the stories of the Old Testament and miss the detail because then we end up grieving when life is hard, thinking that, well, if God delivered Moses, why has he not done the same for me? We need to see that bigger context. Secondly, Moses' story doesn't mean that we can always see God at work in the moment. Look at verses 1 to 10. What name is missing? God. 
There's no mention of God's name in these verses. That's not to say that Moses' parents weren't acting by faith. We've seen that they were. But that doesn't mean that they understood everything that was going on at the time. And it's really important that we see that. Because so often our hearts will think that where God is silent, he's absent. So perhaps, what does this look like for us today? Perhaps you are praying and praying about something in your life and it seems as though God isn't listening. That does not mean God is absent. Perhaps you have been praying and praying for the faith to be courageous and do the kinds of things that Moses' mom and sister are doing here, but it doesn't feel that God is near. That doesn't mean that he's far away. Look at the example of Moses' mom and sister. They remind us that much of God's providence can only be seen in the rearview mirror. That's what we began to see last week, wasn't it, as we looked in, in Exodus 1. Much of God's providence can only be seen in the rearview mirror. That doesn't mean two things. It doesn't mean that you sometimes can't see God at work in the present. Praise God, you can, and there's wonderful encouragement there. Nor does it mean that for every Christian to look in that rearview mirror guarantees that you're going to be able to see those encouraging things. Because for some of us, the season that we are in is so overwhelmingly difficult, it's hard to look back and see those encouragements. But what this passage does remind us is that God is at work, even if we can't see it, to preserve his people through his providence. Second reason we can have hope. Verses 11 to 22, because God overrules our disappointments for good. And this is where we're going to see what looks like a false start of epic proportions. Um, If you flick over to Acts 7, um, it would be helpful perhaps when you get home this afternoon just to reread for yourself the the story of one of the first Christians, his name is Stephen, who uh, shares with this massive crowd something of the history of God's people in the Old Testament. It's a great way of trying to get your head around lots and lots and lots of the Old Testament in one short sermon. And in this uh, this, um, sermon, he mentions for us a number of details about Moses' story Uh, from verse 20 or so. And he tells us, verse 23, that the events that we're about to look at happened when Moses was 40 years old. So if you go back to Exodus 2, verse 11 begins one day. Well, between verse 10 and verse 11, we've had 40 years of time passed. 40 years of time in which Moses was taken up and raised in his young years by his Hebrew mom and dad, And then, verse 10, he was brought to Pharaoh's daughter and was formally adopted by her, and she names him, we think. It's a bit of a discussion about who the she is in verse 10, but it's either a Hebrew name or it's an Egyptian name, which means son of, but without a statement. So it's this, who is he the son of? Because he's adopted by the Egyptians. We don't know exactly who the she named is. But then in verse 11, 40 years have passed. The guy's my age. And all of a sudden, God is at work in such a way that he is drawing his heart for his own people. It's really emphatic in verse 11. His concern is for his own people. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And what did Moses do? He didn't just intervene. He ended it. But lest we 
misinterpret all the words that are going on here. You look in verse 11, we have the word beating. Verse 12, killed. Verse 13, hitting. Verse 15, kill. In the Hebrew, they're all the same words. So the idea is not that Moses acted disproportionately in what he did, but what he did was he killed an Egyptian. And there's all sorts of debate about why. (laughs) Again, if you're over in Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us what Moses was thinking. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So you take that back to verse 12. And some people will say, well, looking this way and that and seeing no one, well, a helpful way to understand that Hebrew phrase, like an idiom, uh, that way of describing things is the same way that term is used in Isaiah. Chapter 59, chapter 63, there's two times when God was said to look this way and that and saw no one, which is not God wondering if he's going to do something that he shouldn't be doing. Of course, because he can't. It's God looking at all of the wickedness that's going on in the world, wondering, is anybody going to intervene and do something? No, so I will. That's what the idiom means when you get to Isaiah. So some people will say, you look at what's going on here. Moses is doing the same thing. He's coming out to rescue the people because he's got this growing sense of that's what God needs him to do. He sees this act of injustice going on. He looks around, sees nobody's coming to the aid of this Hebrew, and so he intervenes. And the Egyptian dies. Which would be very persuasive were it not for my struggle in verse 12 with the fact that after killing him, he hides his body in the sand. It's just hard to pull all of that together. I think the very best we can say is that Moses intervened for the very best of reasons, but he did it the wrong way and at the wrong time. God was going to use Moses to rescue an entire nation of people, but it is not through Moses conducting a vigilante campaign. God's plan is bigger and better than what Moses has got planned here. The problem is, bad news travels fast. It did then. It does now. And it's less than a day that the population of slaves have shared with one another what it is that has happened. So when he finds two Jews fighting, they don't take very kindly to him refereeing. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just as you killed the Egyptian? As that wasn't bad enough for Moses, who thought that he was trying to rescue God's people, and they think that he's, well, you know, who do you think you are? Pharaoh then goes and finds out. And everybody knows what Pharaoh's going to say. Off with his head or whatever they say in Egyptian. Which means Moses has got no choice. He's got to flee from Egypt and go all the way east to this area. Now, it's on the edge of the Arabian Desert, but the name Midian is a little bit of a misleader because the Midianites were known as a nomadic people who would roam. So it's not like he just went to the capital city of Midian and stayed there and settled in this equally prosperous and equally... This is a group of people that didn't really have home in the same way. And this is where that false start disappointment starts to kick in. Just think about everything that's happened to Moses in the first half of chapter 2. He was spared certain death by, of all people, the daughter of the man who made the command. (laughs) 
He's been raised as a Jew. He's understood his heritage of one of God's chosen people. And then he's brought in to be a prince of Egypt. And again, you dip back into Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. He tells us that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So who is Moses? He knows the language. He knows the culture. He's grown up with the leaders. He has what we might have considered an MBA in Egyptian administration. If anybody was going to be the guy who would deliver God's people, it would be him. Verse 21, where is he? It's with a bunch of nomads in Midian. Really? He's still the same man of courage. He's still got that same desire to protect the weak and the vulnerable. That's what we see as he steps in to protect those seven sisters. He's still the same guy, but as good and as right as that was, it's not the same as being with the Lord's people to rescue them from their slavery. You might get to verse 21 and think, what a waste. But God overrules our disappointments for good. And we need to take great comfort in that because at the end of the day, we're not wise enough to know what's going on. And how often do we assume that where we are right now is the end of the story and are reluctant to wait to see how God's plan will unfold? I came across a Chinese story this week that the American minister John Claypool used to tell. He used to tell of this poor Chinese farmer who in his small village in China had only one horse. Use it for everything. Use it to pull the plow, use it to pull the wagon. Everybody in the village knew that this horse meant everything to this man. And one day, a bee stung the horse that went flying up, scared, into the mountains. The poor man goes off to chase him, looks for hours, can't find the horse anywhere. So he comes back down to his village and all the neighbors come out to see him. We're so sorry for the loss of your horse. We know how important this animal is to you. It's such bad luck. The man replies, bad luck, good luck, who's to say? A week later, the horse comes back and he's got 12 wild horses with him. It's like, unbelievable. So all the neighbors come back. They're like, this is incredible. Look, your horse has come back and now you've got 12 wild horses too. What good luck? Man's like, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? The son looks at all the wild horses and thinks, ah, oh, this is remarkable. If I can tame these, we can sell them for a profit. So he mounts one of them, gets kicked off, and breaks his leg in three places. What happens? The neighbors come over. Ah, oh, we're so sorry that your son has had such bad luck. And the father says, bad luck, good luck, who's to say? Next week, war breaks out between two provinces in China. Army comes through, conscripting all the young, able-bodied men can't recruit the son because his leg's broken in three places. We don't believe in luck. We do know that you can look at circumstances in life and say that is bad and sad. And that is right and good. But Claypool's illustration was to help us see that we do not know how to interpret the moment because we lack the wisdom and perspective of God. Now you bring all that back to Exodus 2. How is God overruling Moses' disappointment for good? I, I thought of four. You can let me af know afterwards if you can think of some other ways. Firstly, 
How does God work all of this in ways that Moses wouldn't have expected? Number one, he was now to be trained to be a shepherd. (laughs) Forty years later, he would be shepherding an entire nation under God. Way number two, Moses would learn the geography of Midian. We don't know exactly where he was at this point. We don't know exactly the route that the Lord's people would have taken, but it's entirely probable that the ground that Moses would leave the people over, he'd already covered some of it as a shepherd. Number three, God would use Moses to bring his father-in-law to faith. What's the name of this man in our chapter? It's Reuel. You get to Exodus uh, Exodus 18. His official name for doing his job as a priest is Jethro. Through Moses. Jethro would go from being a pagan priest of the Midianites to declaring, this is from Exodus 18, that the Lord is greater than all other gods and he would serve God with the rest of the Israelites. Number four. Moses would personally experience the suffering and the isolation of his people. That'd be very hard to try and empathize with as an Egyptian prince surrounded by a palace of plenty. But here in Midian, he's a foreigner too. Even as he starts to grow his own family. He knows that he's not putting permanent roots down. And when you see all of that and you step back, you realize Egypt wasn't the only training ground that Moses needed. He also needed to learn lessons through the dust and the desertion of the desert. And that's really challenging. Because if we're honest... We're really happy for God to train us in the temple surrounded by the palace of plenty. But we'd really rather he didn't train us in the desert. Exodus 2 reminds us that God doesn't waste any of it. So if you're feeling this morning that you're in the desert school of discouragement and discipleship, I want you to see that God is at work in that very moment for your good. Now, that's a big claim. Let me show you why that is true from the Bible. Some of our problems as Christians are of our own making. Please don't mishear me. Not all of our problems. But some of our problems are of our own making. And in this case, one that I struggle with, and I'm sure others do, is that we get the wrong finish line. So, We read Paul's famous promise in Romans 8. We know that in all things, God works for good, sorry, for the good of those who love him. And we assume that means God's working all things to make us comfortable. That's our finish line. That's not what God promises. If you look at Romans 8, he tells us exactly what the good thing is that he's working all things towards in the very next verse. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God is overruling Moses' disappointment for good, just as he is working through all the circumstances of your life for your good. 
But the finish line is not a detached house with 2.4 kids on the inside and two hybrid cars on the drive. It's that we'd be more like Jesus. And I, for one, regularly get that wrong. And what happens when you do? You get resentful when you're not quite at the detached house with four bedrooms and 2.4 kids and two cars on the drive. But that's not what God's doing. He's working for your good, but he's defined your greatest good, which is to be like his son. It's that you wouldn't be conformed by the pattern of this world, but Romans 12 will be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I and you, like Moses, need to learn some of those lessons in the dust of the desert because we can't learn it in a palace surrounded by plenty. That's really, really important that we see that because that is not how our sinful hearts like to think about the world in which we live. It is absolutely not how our culture would tell you you would mark success in life. But it is how God works. And not only works, but works all things for your good. So next week, we're going to see in the final three verses of chapter 2 how Moses gives us this this sneak preview, this pull behind the curtain of what is going on. There's There's a third reason we can have hope, and it's because God always keeps his covenant promises. But there's more in that and how prayer relates to the sovereignty of God that is too much for us to do there this week. We're going to dig into that next week. Today, I want to encourage those of you who are discouraged because you feel like you're living with false start after false start after false start. Look at what Exodus teaches us about how God is at work. He is at work even if you can't see it. And if you're a Christian, the Bible tells you, the Lord Jesus Christ has proved for you that God is working all things for our good, that we would be more like him. That's the theme of our closing song. We're going to finish our service by praising God for the way that we get encouragement from seeing that he preserves his people and overwhelms and works through all of our disappointments. And Moses could see that. Remember, Exodus is written by Moses. So so much of this is him looking back on the way God has worked in the past and that giving him encouragement for the future.